Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with K. Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Would you turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 as we finally finish this chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Who, who, somebody asked me how long we're going to be in 1 Corinthians. I don't have an idea. I don't know if I'll live that long. I don't, it's just such a wonderful book. Uh, somebody says you do so much review you could cut your message in half. Well, I know that, but I also know the congregation I'm speaking to. <laughs> and I know the preacher that's speaking, and we've got to catch ourselves up so we stay in the context of what's going on. We're talking today about the dis- discipline of the Apostle Paul. The discipline of the Apostle Paul. And we're going to be looking at verses 24 through 27. The Apostle Paul's life was lived for the spiritual benefit of others. Now, we must understand this is not natural for our flesh. None of us get up every day choosing to live for somebody else. But when we're overwhelmed by Christ and we choose to be a vessel through which he works, then he produces this kind of motivation in our life. It's God and God alone that puts others on our minds. We do not live for anybody but ourselves until we come to the cross, deny ourselves, surrender to him, then he gives us that burden for others. If somebody was lost, Paul would do whatever was required to reach that person. If somebody was saved, he would do whatever was necessary in order for that person to grow in the fullness of the grace that God had given to him. Matter of fact, in our last message, we saw that this motivation to live for others, for eternal things, to see the spiritual benefit worked out in other people's lives, led Paul to restrain himself for the sake of the Jews. Look at verse 20 of chapter 9. He says, And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. Paul knew that he was free from the law. If you've ever studied Romans 7, you know that he knew that. As a matter of fact, in chapter 6, verse 14 of Romans, he says, we're not under the law, we're under grace. And yet he was willing to put himself back up under law to reach his Jewish brethren. Whatever it required to deny himself the privilege of living outside of it, he put himself back up under it in order to reach them. But he was also willing to release himself to the Gentiles. In verse 21, where he's restrained himself with the Jews, he released himself to the Gentiles. It says in verse 21, to those who are without law, ah nomos, ah without nomos law, has to be the Gentiles, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are without law. In no way did he break any moral commandment of God because that's written upon our hearts, the moral law. And he's under that legal obligation to Christ to live accordingly. But Paul says, 
Otherwise than that, I became as a Gentile. In other words, he ate the food that they ate. You know, Jews did not eat certain foods, but the Gentiles did. And he said, I'll eat with them. I dress like them, whatever. I go where they go. As long as it in no way violates that moral law that I'm under with Christ Jesus. He says, I'll do whatever's necessary to reach the Gentile. And then thirdly, we saw that he was willing to reduce himself to those who are weak. Now, to those who are weak has already been qualified in chapter 8 and 9. That means those who are unable to understand the message of grace. The weaker brother, we've already talked about that. And he says in verse 22, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I may by some, by some means, by all means rather, save some. This great intelligent man, probably the most intelligent man we'll ever study about or read about other than Jesus himself, was willing to stoop down to the, the abilities of others around him and do whatever was necessary so that they could come into a full understanding. He didn't stay up here. He was willing to come down here to where others were. Willing to restrain himself, willing to release himself, willing to reduce himself. You see, this whole thing got started in chapter 8. The whole idea is denying yourself for the sake of others. And Paul is simply sharing with these people, I'm not telling you to do something I'm not already doing. I understand what I'm saying because I have learned the discipline of denying myself for the sake of others. Paul not only wanted to participate in the message he preached, but he also wanted others to participate with him. He says in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 9, and I do all things for the sake of the gospel that I may become a fellow partaker in it. I not only want to walk and live in the truths I'm teaching you, but I also want to have others to walk with me so that we can say together we're fellow partakers of the gospel. He had learned again the discipline of denying himself for the sake of others. You know, these days when you mention certain key words, discipline, diligence, uh, determination, we can find some others, I'm sure. A lot of people sort of turn you off because that's not in the vocabulary of believers anymore. Instead of flesh dying daily, flesh is pampered under what we call Christianity. It's amazing what has happened. Television has shaped Christianity in the 20th century. And all of us think that it's what happens in this building rather than what happens outside this building. And it's more of a feeling rather than it's a, a hard, difficult choice daily to deny ourselves. And people would not, they don't want to hear the message of denying self. They want to hear this message over here. Because thinking about disciplining yourself and determination, I believe it was Dr. Stephen Oford years ago that says, diligence and determination are the nails that God uses to keep us on the altar. They're not bad words. They're not legalistic words. They're, they're words that must go along and coincide with our Christian walk. And the Apostle Paul had learned that discipline. He had learned that diligence in his life. He was determined to live daily saying yes to Christ, therefore denying himself for the sake of others. You see, our flesh ha hates to give up anything. It hates to give in to anyone as a matter of fact, one of the greatest ways you know that you're walking filled with the Spirit of God is when we're, you're willing to take the low road for the sake of a brother when, in fact, you know you're right. That's one of the greatest signals that a person's living filled with the Spirit of God. Not some emotional, ecstatic language, but what is the, the bottom line of a person living filled with the Spirit of God is, is he willing to deny himself for the sake of of others. Well, Paul's going to bring us back into focus, just like he's bringing the church of Corinth back into focus. Now, don't forget who we're talking about here. The church of Corinth is totally upside down. They're living in no way like God wanted them to live. And so Paul now is refocusing them. 
And remember, this whole address started to those who understood the message of grace, not to those who didn't. And he told them, said, listen, your, your knowledge makes you arrogant, but if you were filled with the Spirit of God, that love would edify. You're breaking your brother, but you could be building your brother. You haven't learned yet to deny yourself. You're not living the very truth you understand. And it's at the expense of your brother rather than for the sake of your brother that you're living. And that's where it all got started. And so he begins to pull that church back in to focus. Before I get into that though, turn back to chapter three, verse 13. I want you to be reminded of something. Even though many people don't put these words in their vocabulary as believers and they don't want to live a surrendered life, I just wanna make sure you understand there is accountability and there is integrity to how we live. There's coming a day and that day is the day that my works and your works and all of our works are gonna be tested by fire. You see, there's so much integrity in Christianity that people don't even realize. Whatever God has given, God is gonna require. To him that is given much, much is required. The parable of the talents, all these other things fit right alongside this truth. The Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, this is not for unbelievers, this is for believers. It's not to judge our sin that was judged in Christ on the cross. This is not an approval of us, it's an approval of our works. And so the way we live now is directly gonna be proportionate to the, to the way we're rewarded one day when we stand before him. Verse 13, 1 Corinthians 3. Each man's work will become evident. Remember that word phaneros? Bright, brilliant, shining light. Not like these TV lights. I never knew I spit until we put these TV lights in. You turn these TV lights off and you can't see it, but now, now I can see it every night. You go, and I see Haywood sitting in there with an umbrella. It's, it's, it, you understand that with the bright lights, brilliance of light. On that day, when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, so thrilled to be in glory, God wants to reward us. And when we stand there, nothing is gonna be hidden. It's gonna be each man. The word each man means each one separate and apart from others. You see, that's the whole point of Corinthians. Paul says, what in the world are you doing attaching yourself to me? Why are you attaching yourself to Apollos? Why are you attaching yourself to Simon Peter? Don't do that. Attach yourself to Jesus. So that one day, having lived faithfully and walking by faith in his word, saying yes to him and denying yourself, you can stand before him one day, you can be rewarded because each man's work will become evident. By the way, the word work is singular, not plural. What we do, our deeds, our works, go into this work. And what remains is what stands after the test of fire. He said each man's work will become evident for the day will show it. We believe that to be the day of Christ, when Christ raptures the church because it is to be revealed with fire. The fire reveals. Now back in earlier in the chapter, he said there are two kinds of, of materials. There's wood, hay, and stubble, that's your flesh walk. That's what's gonna be consumed. That's what's not by faith. But then there's gonna be those things produced by faith. This is what Paul's talking about in chapter nine. He's just giving us a clear picture. If we live denying ourselves and we're walking by faith, we're not walking after the flesh. And these works will remain because they're not produced by us, they're produced by the Spirit of God living in us. He says, because it is to be revealed with fire, this work that all of our deeds went into. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Now this is not a bad teaching. This is not a threatening teaching. This ought to be the greatest thing we've ever heard. Because as we learn to deny ourselves, I guarantee you nobody's gonna stand around and applaud you. They're gonna spit on you, make fun of you and embarrass you. But I'll tell you what, Jesus is keeping account. And one day when you stand before him, that's when it's gonna be made worthwhile. Not here, there, you see. That's what he's saying. I want to reward you for walking by faith. 
I saved you by grace, put my spirit to live in you, gave you the word of God. And if you'll just say yes in the energy I've already given you, isn't it amazing the salvation we have? I'll reward you for it. And the fire will test your work. He's not out to get you. He already has you. The word test, dokimazo, it means to test to prove you genuine. He's not out to test you to prove you unworthy. God only wants to reward your life. If any of us stand one day at the bema seat of Christ and we do not have any works left, it's not his fault. It's our unwillingness to, de- to live with the discipline of denying ourselves, which Paul is talking about in chapter 9. Verse, he says, the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work, not the quantity. Why you did it. Verse 14, if any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. Verse 15, if any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. I believe all that Paul is saying in that verse is, what Christ started can never be burned. That's why you need to be careful how you build upon the work or the foundation, because if, if Christ saved you, Christ will sanctify you. And if you keep living by faith, then he'll produce the work and the work will remain. And one day you can rejoice with others if we put the crowns back at the feet of the Lord Jesus. Well, the focus in chapter three is what's coming one day. Why we need to be living like we need to be living now. Well, that is the same focus in chapter nine. However, it's not just the future. It is the present that Paul has to deal with because he has something to say very specifically about the present. And he's trying to refocus the church at Corinth and particularly those who understood the message of grace. He says, folks, understanding is not the key. Living up under that which you understand is the key. Getting into the word is not the key. Letting the word get into you is what the key is. If you're not saying yes to Christ, then you're not living denying yourself, and you have no, quote, for the sake of others in your life. It's always for the sake of yourself. And the works that you're doing, even if they're as religious as they are, one day will be tested. And so he brings them back to this sobering thought in chapter 9. Verse 24, let's read the scripture and then we'll get into it. He says, do you not know that all those who run in a race all run, that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. And everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we and imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim, I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is one of my favorite passages in all of scripture and the first time ever that I preached it right in the context where it lies. I've used this many years, speaking to FCA groups and things like that. Athletes respond to this quicker than anybody. Men today will respond to this message, even though it's Mother's Day, men are gonna respond to it, I guarantee you. Because we understand the imagery that Paul is using here, but I have never preached it couched in its context. The context is beautiful. The whole context is the willingness to deny yourself for the sake of others, and the future reward for having done so. And then Paul says, hey, Let me put it in a way that maybe you can see. It's kind of like he finishes the book of Ephesians. For five and a half chapters, he talks about being strengthened in the inner man, putting on the garment of Christ. And finally, he says, guys, finally, I've got to go cut the grass. He says, let me put this in a way that gets your attention. You're in a war. And he talks about spiritual warfare in chapter six. And all he's doing is is wrapping up the book because the garment of chapter four is the armor of chapter six. Very similar to what he's doing right here. He's just wrapping up a subject of denying self for the sake of others. 
And he's trying to deliver them from the arrogance of thinking that understanding truth doesn't cut it. That's just the first step. Living up under what you understand, that's where it, that's where it really hits the road. And so he wraps it up. There are three things I want us to look at in this passage. First of all, the concept Paul wanted them to realize. And again, the imagery here. He says in verse 24, do you not know that those who run in a race all run? Now, again, in refocusing the Corinthian believers, he takes something out of their culture that every single Corinthian would understand. I mean, there couldn't have been anything else they understood more than what he uses here. And that's the Isthmian Games. You know, they had the Olympic Games in Athens. They had the Isthmian Games in Corinth. Remember the Temple of Poseidon I told you about early? If you weren't here, maybe I need to go back and tell you. There were three main temples in Corinth. Right downtown in the marketplace was the Temple of Apollo, Apollo not Apollos. Apollos was the second pastor of the church. Don't get them mixed up. Apollo was the temple god there the God of wisdom and knowledge. And then up on top of the Acropolis, that great mountain structure that overlooked the city, there was the temple of Venus or Aphrodite, the goddess of love, quote. They had a thousand priestesses that were really prostitutes. That was a really interesting time. But then outside the city, they had the temple of Poseidon. You say, who is he? Well, I call him the health spa God. <laughs> he was the God of the physique. I mean, this is the guy, and right beside his temple was the arena where they had the Isthmian game. There was something they looked forward to. It was held every two to three years. As a matter of fact, most people think, and I'm one of them, this is why Paul went to, to Corinth to begin with. He was a tent maker. What did he do when he got there? Found a Priscilla and Aquila. What did they do? They started making tents. Now, why? Was he just walking by one day and saying, hey, how are you doing? What are you doing? Oh, I think I'll do it with you. No. He had a purpose in his mind because he made his own money. Remember, in chapter nine, he refused support by the churches, so therefore, he made his own way. And he was a tent maker. And why would he be making tents? Because that's where the Isthmian games were. And when the people came for those Olympic kind of games, they would camp out in tents. And so, this was one of the way of supporting his ministry. Remember what an isthmus is, don't you? Do you remember that? An isthmus is four miles wide, four miles long, a little piece of land that Corinth, where Corinth sat, that connected the main body of the European continent of Greece, but also that southern peninsula that hung on the bottom of it. That little isthmus, it connected those two land masses together. And that was a critical place. And they had their own games. Even though the Olympic games were in Athens, they had the Isthmian games in Corinth, one of the wealthiest cities in the world where people would come. Now, the running events then were just like the running events of today. The way you ran, now listen to me, was not dependent on the way others ran. I could take one exception with that. When I ran indoor track when I was in military school, we ran at VMI. They have an indoor track. And there's a tunnel <laughs> on each end. It's amazing what went on in that tunnel. It had a whole lot to do with the way others would run. <laughs> I've come out of there bleeding, bloodly nose. I mean, you just know what went on in that tunnel because somebody may beat you up before you get out of it. But... Let's put that aside. Normally, in, the, in running a race, it's not dependent on how this person runs, it's dependent on how you run. Track amongst all the sporting arena is an individual sport, not a team sport. When I played football, when I played basketball, it had to do with how I played, yes, but it had to do with how everybody else played. You can have four guys in sync and one out of sync and you're gonna lose, but not in track. It's all resting on you. 
how you run, how you prepare, how you make the choices to do that. And it is significant that Paul in chapter three says you're gonna be standing there on your own. You're not dependent on how I live, it's dependent on how you live. And then he comes over in chapter nine and says, hey, it's not dependent on how he runs, it's dependent on how you run, using that individual sport. You see, I can't live for you and you can't live for me. We each have to make our own choices. Paul is saying, you and you alone determine the outcome of the race. And in the Christian life, that's the discipline that he calls for. The kind of discipline that says, if I stand before Christ one day and there are no rewards, it's nobody's fault but my own. And I need to make some serious choices so that there'll be a rejoicing time in my life on that day. And I'll be a part of the crowd that puts the crowns back at the feet of Jesus. Now in the Christian life, even though we need each other, still, when we stand before Christ, it'll not be with anybody else. It'll be standing before Him. So it's clear in chapter nine, the choice that Paul had made. And by using this imagery and this comparison, it's almost as if in it, he's asking them, what choice are you gonna make? Remember his audience. His audience are those who have been taught. His audience are those who have understood and he's saying, now are you willing to bow down and deny some of the privileges you've understood that you have for the sake of your brother? And if you're willing to do that, at the end of the race, there is a reward. When the rewards are given one day in the Christian life, it'll determine who chose to walk by faith and who chose to walk after the flesh. You know what's interesting about that? And we said this in chapter three you may end up in the same place. It may look the same to everybody else, but God knows the difference of why you did what you did. That's the key. Legalism has a whole different motive than being under grace. And only those things done under grace will be the things that last one day when the rewards are given out. So he begins with a concept that he wants them to realize. And the concept is a race. He puts us into a race. He makes us, he, the imagery is clear. And it's like a runner running a race. Every person in Corinth would have understood exactly what he was talking about. Well, the second thing I want you to see this morning are the comparisons he wanted them to relate to because there's several comparisons here. When you take a physical example of running a race and you put it next to the living, the Christian life, there are gonna be some things that aren't the same. There are gonna be some things that are similar. And of course, Paul, the master teacher, uses this imagery to do exactly that. Because anybody that knows the word, understood what they understood, would immediately see the contrast, the differences and yet the similarities as he works his way through. He says in verse 24, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Now when he says, do you not know, the word is evo, E-I-D-O, taken from the word horao, which means don't you know and fully perceive and understand? And this is a simple question. Obviously they did. Why would he ask that? It's sort of like a rhetorical question. He knows that they understand it. Well, he's teaching them. And he, now that he's got his attention, everybody says, well, yeah, we know that. He says, now that I got your attention, <laughs> let me use this as the basis for what I want to show you. They knew that all those who run in a race, all run, every one of them run, but only one receives the prize. You know, we know that today, don't we? If you took that same illustration and brought it into Woodland Park and said, don't you know that in a track meet that when a person runs, there's a lot of people running, but only one gets the prize? That's why you run with the effort and the diligence so that you can win the prize? We all know that. 
Even the person who's the most non-athletic knows that from watching television. You, uh, several months ago, I think, it might have been weeks ago. It's not been that long ago, but time goes by so fast, I don't know when it was. When the Boston Marathon was being run, I happened to catch that thing. I caught the beginning, I caught a little bit later on in the race, and then I caught the end of it. I didn't watch it from start to finish, it takes a while. And I watched those, looked like to me thousands, I didn't hear the number. But I mean, it looked like a bunch of ants on an anthill when they started off in Boston. I'm thinking, good night. How in the world are they gonna ever filter out to where they're faster than and slower runners? Cause the first block or two, it looked like they were all blocked in there together. But all of a sudden, you start seeing several of them pull out. All of those runners, I guarantee you, if you sat down and interviewed those runners, they had trained and trained and trained and sweated and dieted and done everything else. And they're all out there now. What are they there for? One purpose, to win the race. But I also watched the very end of it when it came down to about five of them, then it filtered down to three of them, then two of them, then finally one of them broke out in the front and the motorcycles got behind him and, and put the cameras on him. And that fella, only one, won the race. Now that's as simple as ABC. Paul says, hey, I can see some of the Corinthians, especially his audience saying, what are you doing, Paul? Good grief, that's a simple question. Well, he's making a comparison here of the dedicated athlete and he wants to make sure that all those athletes run to win. They know that. Now compare this to living the Christian life. It's kind of like Paul takes you into the training camp of these athletes. You begin to smell the sweat. You begin to hear the intensity of, of them. You begin to feel the devotion of these athletes. These athletes all came to Corinth early. And you know how it is when we had the, the Blue Angels here. I was out in the church parking lot the other day. We'd hear something come across. And by the time we'd run out, of course, it was 25 miles away, but we'd always run out the wrong time. I wanted to stand out there when I wasn't hearing anything. Then I could see the thing come over. Finally, Steve and I stood out there and saw them come over the church, and they turned, boy, and they were practicing for the big event. You know what that did? That made me get out yesterday and go watch it because I wanted to see the, the Blue Angels. I wanted to see the air show. And that's what happened in Corinth. There was, there was excitement generated. Here comes these athletes in from other countries because as the ships came in to the ports on both sides of that isthmus. And all of a sudden, they came into the arena of the Temple of Poseidon. And back in those days, just like today, they worshiped the athlete. Oh, man, look who's here to get your autograph. And the people would go out and watch them practice for months. And the intensity of watching these men practice and sweat and pay a price to do what they did was built into the minds of those people. And the Apostle Paul, loving those athletic events like he did, brought their minds back into the imagery of that. And he's teaching them now about how the Christian life is supposed to be lived. You see, those runners knew when they walked on the turf, only one would win the prize. Every one of them is dedicated as the others and there for the single purpose of winning that prize. And therefore, it was serious. It was sober. It had purpose behind it. So he says, run in such a way that you may win. Now that word such a way immediately makes the comparison. The word havto, it means to run in like manner as they did, as they prepared, as they denied themselves to run that race, as they had a purpose that motivated them, you take that into your Christian life and you live the same way. That's what he's saying. You live in such a way, he says, that you may win. Now, let's look at some of the similarities and, and differences that are between living the Christian life and running 
the race. There's some similarities, some differences, as I said. First of all, a major difference. And of course, Paul, speaking to those that were the learned, those who understood, they would have caught on. A major difference is in the Isthmian Games, all of those runners, all that effort, only one gets the prize. Now, but in the Christian life, there's a prize for everyone who's willing to live denying himself. Isn't that wonderful? I'm not competing with you and you're not competing with me. To those that are given much, much is required, as we said earlier. And so therefore, you work within the scope of what God has given to you. And as you're willing to stand obedient to Christ, saying no to self by saying yes to him, then you receive a reward for that or rewards, plural, for that. The crowns that are going to be given, they're mentioned all through scripture. So there are rewards to believers. Not just one prize, but every believer can win the prize. We're in no way competing with one another. That, to me, is a tremendous truth. Otherwise, be like it was when I pastored in another town where they had a uh, small town and they had one of every denomination churches there. First thing I'd find on Monday morning, somebody'd call my secretary and say, how many did y'all have Sunday morning? You knew who it was. It was over to Presbyterian Church. They wanted to see because they were almost neck and neck with us every week and they were trying their best to get ahead of us because when we get to heaven, there's only one reward and only the one who has the most in church is gonna get that reward. That's the way some people live, as if it's that way. They take it that seriously. Oh, how many did you win of Jesus last week? 42, oh, is that all good? I won 4,322, you know? It's amazing how we think we can win anybody to Jesus. Even the terminology is wrong, folks. God, the Holy Spirit, who convicts a person of his lostness. Oh, yeah, we can win people to churches and we can win people to ourselves. We can't win a soul to Christ. Jesus wins people to himself. He just uses us as his vessel. But oh, it's amazing how many people compete in that area. How many people you have on roll now, Brother Wayne? How many you're running today? I remember 10 years ago, how many you were running? How many you're running today? Whoa, you're not running as many as you used to. You're sliding back in the race. You're not going to get a prize. <laughs> Roy Hessian said to me when he was living, he came here. It's a good thing he said to me when he was living. If he said to me he was dead, he <laughs> But he said to me, it's funny how you say that sometimes. That's kind of like the guy said, I'm honest, I'm really telling you the truth. <laughs> Well, you've been lying to me. Anyway, Roy said to me, he said, you know, it's interesting to me. I come to America. You people take the message and you preach it and your churches grow. I go back to England. We preach it and the churches get smaller. Who's doing it right? Oh. So who's winning this race? <laughs> Thank God we're not in competition with anybody. I'm not in competition with you. You're not in competition with me. I'm not going to stand with you. You're not going to stand with me. Therefore, we can encourage each other and rejoice when, when both of us stand up there and the rewards are given and we can look over and say, yes, and we take them and put them back at the feet of Jesus. The Christian life, everybody gets a prize if he's willing to walk by faith. That's what we learn. Chapter. As a matter of fact, look over 2 Timothy chapter 4. Here's a man who's doing the preaching to Corinth. Here's a man at the end of his life. No regrets. Well, look, I'm going to show you something. 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. The Apostle Paul writing to his son in the faith, Timothy. What a dear relationship they had. As a matter of fact, a little later on in the epistle, he says, Timothy, I'm lonely. Will you come, come to me? And Timothy, I'm cold. Will you bring me my coat? And Timothy, I'm bored of tears. Will you bring me my parchments? About to die, be martyred for the... Didn't have a thing in this world. Well, that just knocks the health wealth doctrine, doesn't it? 2 Timothy 4, 6. For I'm already poured out as a drink offering, Paul said. The time of my departure has come. How did he know that? Well, evidently God let him know. Verse 7. 
I have fought the good fight. We're going to see that come up in a minute, so I'm not going to tell you what it means right yet. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Verse 8. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. You think he wasn't looking forward to a reward? Just like a runner running a race? But look what he says. Finishes the verse. And not only to me, this is the precious part of it, but also to all who have loved his appearing. What does John say? John says, if you have this hope of the coming of the Lord, you will purify yourselves. Well, Paul put, put in together with what Paul says. Paul says, if you purify yourself, you walk by faith, you're going to be rewarded for it. <laughs> so whoever's willing to live denying the self, the discipline of denying yourself by saying yes to Christ in all situations, allowing him to make you sensitive to others around you, it's absolutely guaranteeing you a reward. It would be wonderful to stand before him one day and just to hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. I'm sorry I wasn't here for Brother Haywood's 50th anniversary of ministry. I was here though, wasn't I? I sent a cousin of mine to talk to you. <laughs> I love this man. I know you know that. And I've watched him over the years. I, I long for the day when I, if I live that long, to be on my 50th and somebody say, Man, it wouldn't be great to be on your 50th and God just say, Phew, that's a lot, come on. You're closer to my house than you are yours anyway and take you right on home. And as soon as you get there, just put his arm around you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. You see, folks, when you start, that's one thing, but when you finish, that's another. Most of us never finish, we start. We're great starters. Folks, they're going to come and finish one day. And that's what Paul is saying. Go on, Corinthians, live the way you want to live. One day you will answer for it, and I'm trying to encourage you. There's a prize if you'll just take this imagery and learn to live the way you ought to live. Well, there's a major difference, but also there's a major similarity between the two. Major similarity. That's this. It's the pain of choice. It's in both. The pain of choice. Now, you, if you're, I hear these people stand up and say, Oh, Lord, give me sickness instead of health, poverty instead of wealth. I'm thinking, do you realize what you just sung? I don't know what in the world people are doing. When you go to the cross, flesh dies hard. And it's painful when you say no to your flesh and say yes to Christ. I mean, it'll scream at you. It'll do everything in the world. And then the consequences of that choice can even be more painful. And that's the same in running a race making choices to discipline yourself and prepare yourself and train yourself for that race and then running the race with every fiber of energy in your body and your body hurts like it's never hurt before. That's the very same pain that's in the choices of the Christian life. Denial of self is denial of self. The difference is the motive and the purpose. But the pain is the same. He does not spare us the pain. Look in verse 25. And everyone who competes in the games. You know what the word compete in the game is? It's the word agonizomai. Guess what word we get from that? <laughs> Pretty easy, isn't it? Agony. Matter of fact, if you'll follow it through the New Testament, it'll be a great rewarding study. Any athlete can testify to this. I remember years ago when I was, uh, <laughs> I played basketball and football. Football first, but of course in basketball, when I was in prep school, played only, uh, played football and basketball in college, but I wanted to play something in the spring because it got out of drill. I was in a military school and you didn't have to drill if you was in some sport. 
They wanted me to play first base. I showed up because we had a state bas a champion basket, uh, baseball team. But I chose to go for track. You know why? Because I was lazy. I always wanted to lay out there and get a good suntan. I did the field events. I didn't get into running events. And the coach kept saying, guys, you better train. You better train. You better train. You may be asked to run one day. You may be asked to run one day. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'd go out and jump a few times and run. and just, we, just, we just had the best time. Really, we just got a good suntan. One day, they, were in the, they had the mile relay. Y'all know what a mile relay is. Or as you have, you know what a mile relay is. All the guys do. Four 440s. Matter of fact, <laughs> it was awful. It's like a death run. It's like a suicide. Anybody in that thing is an idiot. And the anchor person on the mile relay team got sick. And the coach, <laughs> knowing that Barbara knew little of the pain that the other people were, were having to choose to endure, came over and said, well, Wayne, I've been telling you to train. Surely you have. I want you to run the anchor leg. <laughs> do what? Am I dreaming? Who, who are you? I don't know. Hey, boy, I got over there. I had to learn, learn how to take that baton. That's the first thing I had to learn because I wasn't running anything. Man, I got in that race. I said, I'm going to show them. Man, they gave me that baton. And folks, when I started off, if I could have kept the pace, I would have broken every world record that's ever been set. <laughs> I forgot that 220 is different from 440. First 220, man, I mean, I blazed that track. There was smoke coming up behind my shoes. But then the pain that every one of these other guys had already had to learn to endure that I hadn't, I've been fooling around and hadn't understood yet, hit me. Like a gorilla jumped on my back. That's what they call it. A thousand pound gorilla. Good night. It was like it hit me and it froze me in midair. It's like my heart, my body says, uh-uh, can't go any further. I had 220 yards to go. I held up a race, finishing hey, I was going to finish. I, I was barely able to walk, but I was going to finish. <laughs> and when I got across the finish line, the whole crowd, I got more attention than the winner did. The whole crowd just went nuts because they, they couldn't do anything else until I got off the track. The coach walked over and put his arm around me. He was helping me, helping me trying to breathe. He said, breathe now, breathe. You know, I was walking along and said, oh, by the way, Wayne, appreciate the way you've been training on the night. You know, you, <laughs> you really understood the pain. <laughs> See, that's in a race, and every athlete understands that. There's a pain, there's pain, and you're not spared that. Nobody's spared that pain. It comes as a result of your choice, and if you have a purpose that's clear and focused, you will make that kind of choice. And in the Christian life, it's exactly the same way. I won't tell you, friend. Next time, sir, you go into your wife's room, and, and you say, honey, I realize I'm wrong and you confess that sentence in your life to your wife. I want you to pick up the phone and call me and tell me how much fun it was. Because the flesh hates it. And it's going to be painful. Next time you choose to love somebody when they're spitting in your face and you know good and well they're wrong and you choose to love them by not saying anything about them to the people you could have said it to and really brought them down. Understand the pain of what he's talking about. You see, the Christians that aren't living that way, they don't have a clue what you're talking about. Pain? This is fun. Man, we go to church every week and we sing and we rejoice and it's wonderful. They don't have a clue of what it's like to walk Monday through Saturday denying yourself and living at the cross. This is one of the reasons I get so many cards and letters is because, <laughs> not nice, I'm just 
adamantly at my age going to stand in the middle of a highway and say, people, that which you're hearing and calling Christianity has nothing to do with it. It's missing the teaching of the cross. If there's not a dying to self, you have missed the whole point of what the Christian life's all about. You don't even know it. Well, Brother Wayne, I want to feel better when I leave your service. Well, I hope you do, but in the right way. To feel better, you're going to have to feel a whole lot worse when the flesh is offended at the cross. Well, every believer who walks by faith denying self understands the pain Paul's talking about. Colossians 4.12, Paul says, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings. And then it uses this word, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. Agonizing for you. He knows the pain. 1 Timothy 6.12, Paul says, fight the good fight of faith, Timothy. And the word used there is the word agon. Fight the good fight. It's agony to do this. And of course, I think the fight that he's fighting here is the fight with himself. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And then that verse I read to you a while ago but didn't explain in verse 7 of 2 Timothy 4, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. That's the word, agony. It has cost me, Paul said. I'm in a hole in Rome. I don't have anything. But oh, am I looking forward to the reward that's coming. I have learned the price. I've learned the pain from having chosen to deny myself. Striking similarity to running a race. That guy stands on that platform taking that prize. Boy, I love to watch the Olympics, don't you? And when they stand up there, and I love it when they play the, the, our national anthem because I don't like it when other ones are played. That means we lost. But I love them to stand up there. The guy's got that medal around. Boy, he's just beaming. Da, 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 da. You know what I mean? I mean? It's just wonderful. Don't you think it's worth it to him having paid the price that he paid to get there? That's what Paul's saying. Why would you live like you're living? Man, start learning to deny yourself. It's worth it one day. Well, but there's another striking difference in the comparisons. A major similarity, but also a striking difference. A major difference. In running the race at Corinth, it's up to the runner and his strength. But if he, like I did on that 440 mile relay, if he, if he comes to the end of himself, then that's it. It's up to him, it's up to his strength. But look in verse 25, 1 Corinthians 9. Christian life, he doesn't spare us of the pain of choice and its consequence. But when we make the choice, he then enables us to conquer the flesh and to live victoriously. He says in verse 25, and everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. <laughs> that word self-control is the word egratevome. And it means to be master over something. Now this gives us a wonderful clue as to what Paul's pointing at. This same word, self-control, is the fruit of the Spirit of God. Look over in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And remember, the Spirit of God produces in us and through us what we cannot work up ourselves. Whereas a runner, by his own self-will, can suck it up and go, a believer comes to the place that he has no strength. And it's in his weakness, God makes him strong. That's the difference, major difference. He doesn't spare us the pain, but once we've made the choice and we bear the consequence, he enables us with his strength. Galatians 5, 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Verse 23, gentleness, and what's the next word? Self-control. The word, exact same word, it's the word that means to be master over something, to be 
in, in, in authority over our body. In other words, when we make the choice, God takes over and enables us to carry it through. Look over in Colossians 1, 29, one of the greatest verses here. I love it because it puts the balance into it. You gotta understand this because if you just compare the Christian life to a race, you're gonna be competing with everybody as if there's only one prize. You're gonna be trying to live as if it's up to you and it's not up to you, it's up to Christ in you. It's up to you to make the decision, but it's up to Christ in you to sustain you and strengthen you. Colossians 1, 29. And for this purpose also I what? I labor. Man, there's a lot of pain and toil in this thing. Striving according to his power, which mightily does what? Works within me. I strive according to what? His power. There's your balance right there. That's the difference, you see, in Christianity and running a race. So what do we have so far? The difference that every believer has a reward waiting for him? The similarity that every, every Christian has, has the same pain and feels the same pain a runner would feel in making his choices, bearing the consequence? But the difference that whereas God does not spare us the pain, God enables us, whereas in a race, he doesn't. He, it's, it's up to the person to do whatever he needs to do. And then finally, and I guess I'll have to close here. My time's gone. Man, I, I just enjoy it when you're enjoying yourself. But uh, I, got, I got a bunch more. <laughs> I got eight more pages. But anyway, let's just finish. There's another major difference. It's in the nature of the reward. He says in verse 25, and everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Paul points to the wreath that a runner runs for in Corinth. Of course, what it was was a pine wreath. And he says that's perishable. Matter of fact, with that wreath came other things. Fame. You realize you were immortalized in Greece if you won the Olympic Games or the Isthmian Games? I mean, this was something that you can it's well, hey, we can't understand. I mean, by the way, if you're so infatuated with sports these days, be careful. In the NBA, I heard a statistic the other night at the concert of prayer. The average number of illegitimate children per player is 2.5. One guy on the dream team has seven illegitimate children by six different women. But boy, we'll miss church to watch a ball game. They did the same thing. They were immortalized when they won. But you see, that immortality that people would give them was as perishable as the wreath that they had, corruptible. But when you walk by faith, our prize is both eternal and imperishable. And I'm gonna to have to stop there, so when I come back, I'm gonna come back to that point. I'll review those things and I'll come back to that point because this is important. I just don't have the time to finish it this morning. Let me ask you the question. How are you living your Christian life? Is it like a runner who prepares for a race knowing that only one can win? And that doesn't, the one winning is not the key. The key is how he makes his preparation and the willingness to make choices that he makes so that he could be that one. That's, that's all Paul's saying. He, he's saying, hey, you, you have that same kind of zeal in your life. Live that way. You say, Wayne, that sounds kind of legalistic. You know what's wrong with us? Legalism is when you take something of character like diligence, discipline, or whatever, and you make it a standard by which you measure yourself and then judge everybody else. That's legalism. But being up under grace, the same standard is there that God holds over us. The difference is, and we have to make the same choices. However, now under grace, he enables us to make those choices and then sustains us once we've made them. <laughs> Not bad if you think about it. And then one day rewards you for making them. Whew, what a salvation. 
riding down the interstate one time in Florida, thinking about these very truths. I got so overwhelmed, I wanted to stop the car and get out in the median and just flag everybody down and say, do you know what God has made available to you? But there are a lot of people like me that'd rather go out for the field events and not train. And a, and a big test comes their way, and buddy, when it hits them, they fail it like you wouldn't believe it because they hadn't prepared for it. And that's a picture of the way they live their life, from calamity to calamity to calamity, instead of just getting in that lane consistently running the way you're supposed to run. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org. 